The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Two men with identities forged in the white-hot fires of the 90s comic book boom. Now ready to re-examine the era where heroes became extreme and one magazine gave rise to a market of speculation. If you've got the guts, prepare to enter the world of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. Greetings, geeks, and welcome to episode 56 of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. The podcast where we re-examine the 90s comic book boom through the pages of Wizard Magazine. Ready for an Amalgam-style event where the Joker's ex is combined with Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman for a story called Harley Quinn Medicine Puddin'? I'm Adam. And Michael was so disgusted by that pun that he could not be with us here tonight, and that is just fine. (laughs) Give the man a rest. But luckily, we have someone very special joining us this time around, a man who grew up reading the 90s issues of The Guide to Comics, just like us, before graduating to becoming a full-fledged writer for Wizard in the 2000s, and then moving on to work in the hallowed halls of Marvel Comics, a gentleman who also has the distinction of being our very first guest on the Wizard Files interview series. We're excited to welcome back to the show, Ben Morse. Ben, how's it going? It's going great, Adam, and I'm so excited to get back to the show. I just finished. I'm not caught up all the way, but I've been listening to you guys since my appearance. I've been loving both the interviews and the Wizard Files with some of my old colleagues, but also it's really cool to get on one of these episodes. I was just listening to the one where you had Brian Cunningham on. I just finished that this morning, so I'm a couple episodes back, but I'm ready to jump in and uh, get my hands dirty. Yeah, this is excellent. Now, for people who haven't listened to your interview, like I say, it was in the early days, just real quick for people, why don't you give them a kind of a heads up as to your connection to the world of comics as a professional, what you've been involved in on the journalism side and elsewhere? Sure. I was a fan for years and years. I read this issue of Wizard that we're going to cover when I was a kid. And then in 2004, when I graduated college, I went and worked for Wizard, first as a research assistant, later as a staff writer. I was there for a few years before I got called up to Marvel Comics, where I worked in the digital media department from 2007 to 2017. And since 2018, I've been a professor at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. I teach classes in digital media and podcasting. I definitely use a lot of my comic book experiences in my curriculum. I just got my graduate degree, went to grad school, and my 80-page thesis was on why Magneto and the X-Men are an effective teaching tool of teaching younger people about the Holocaust. Yeah, that's how you do it, man. <laughs> and I was like, when I got hired, they said, do you want to go to grad school while you're teaching? You can get a discount. And I was like, yeah, I think I'd really like to do that. And then when they asked me what I wanted to kind of base my studies on, I was like, well, can I do comic books? And they were like, yeah, absolutely. Like, you know plenty about it. And it, yeah, it was like a three-year journey, but I was always working on this Magneto thing in the background. And I cannot believe they gave me a graduate degree for writing that many pages about Magneto and the X-Men. But there you go, Adam. It's it's proof that dreams come true. <laughs> oh, that is so cool. Now, let's, uh, let's go back a little bit, though. You know, we heard about your origin story. If people want to get all your details of your early comic book fandom, they can go listen to your interview. But how old were you in 1996 when you were reading this issue initially? So I was 14 years old, just on the edge of high school, and... I was kind of fading out. I was actually wondering when you sent me this issue to read, I was like, is this going to be one of the last issues I read? 
or did it not make the cut? Because I remember a lot of the stuff discussed here, Marvel versus DC and Onslaught specifically being when I started to duck out of comics for a couple years. It wasn't a long hiatus. I was right back uh, when I went to college because we had a huge, awesome comic book store in New London, Connecticut, where I went to school called Sarge's Comics and ended up getting me full on back, probably actually even more into comics than I was as a kid. But this was right on the tail end as I was getting ready to take a little bit of a break, but I still remember all this stuff. Now, from your days as simply a reader, are there moments from the 90s issues, whether it was an article or just, you know, something that was packed into the poly bag that stands out to you as like a true wizard memory? Like, ah, this is why I love the magazine. I remember from, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but issue 50 was the one where they did the tour of the wizard offices. Yeah. When I went to interview with Wizard in 2004, I remembered like distinctly that office tour. Like I was like, oh, my God, I'm seeing rooms that I saw in a magazine when I was 13 years old. I'm meeting people who were previously just characters and that goofiness to me, Brian and Joe and Pat. That I distinctly remember. I was a reader from, you know, uh, almost near the beginning. So I remember a lot of like early image articles, X-Men articles. I also remember that, and I don't know if I mentioned this the first time I was on, I did actually enter one of the art contests. Oh. And it was around this time because it was an amalgam art contest. I did, you'll, you'll appreciate this, I did a mashup of the Legion of Superheroes and the New Warriors called the Legion of Warriors. <laughs> I thought sounded like a perfect professional wrestling stable. Um, <laughs> and I... Didn't get into the magazine, but I did win a consolation prize. They sent me a autographed copy of JLX number one. Oh, so, cool. So I did actually participate and win that. And I went and told Brian and Pat about that when I got hired. And they said, I was like, do you remember that? They're like, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> we don't remember. I was like, I was like, is my original art like in the warehouse somewhere? Like, I don't know. I thought it was very cool. That's awesome. Ooh, well, that is the perfect setup for what we're going to be getting into now. So, Ben, I say that we uh, check out that mail and open up Willie Lumpkin's mailbag. <laughs> Now, here's the thing. The letters in this issue of the Magic Words column are pretty dull. Uh, I shared one of them just recently on our social media, which was Paula, the gal who dressed up as Vampirella in 1995 for the costume contest. She came back around, but apparently was late in submitting it. She had a, a picture of her dressed as Razor, this indie bad girl character. And so she gave her address and everything. I don't know what was going on. Jim McLaughlin said he called. <laughs> like, yes, I have her number. And then kind of said, hey, is it okay if we share this? You know, she's like, yeah, go ahead. But that being the case, I just thought there is some really cool stuff having to do with the amalgam event all throughout the magazine. But it begins with cyberspace. Yes, Buddy Scalera and the crew over there were super into using the power of the net to reach all the fans who were wanting that next level experience. And so they tell us here that Wizard thought up five of their own amalgam characters and then asked the Wizard World America Online subscribers to vote for their favorites. So here are the results. Ben and I are going to go back and forth and tell you these amalgam combinations of what they scored. So why don't you take the first one, Ben? 
Sure, we've got Iron Man and Dark Side as Iron Side, which scored a 21% rating. Which was one of those, like, 70s or early 80s detective shows, I'm pretty sure, Iron Side. You are correct. I know that the guys at Wizard, whether it was in, you know, 1996 or whether it was in 2006, could not resist a good cultural pun. So the next one here is uh, Batman and Daredevil as devil bat which that's just not roll off the tongue in any way <laughs> that is tied with ironside with 21 percent. so i think people like the idea of batman and daredevil being combined more than the name right and then the next one is is pretty clever this is not just your standard let's uh mix up the two names it was wolverine and green lantern as wolverine <laughs> i love it and that got 19%. That's probably my favorite. Yeah, that's that's just a, a good time. Um, next one here, fun combination just to visualize what it could have looked like, which was Silver Surfer and Firestorm as Silver Storm. Got 14% for that one. And then another one that got 14% in kind of a little bit of a prescient view of what Wizard was about here because it's War Machine and Peacemaker as War Maker. In 1996, I don't think anyone knew who Peacemaker was, but flash forward to 2022 and, you know, he's a big star, so maybe they knew what they were doing. Yeah, I think he had a DC Cosmic card, like when that mm -hmm. first series came out, so I maybe knew Peacemaker from that. But otherwise, yeah, there was no comics that you were finding too often. Uh, and then finally, from that AOL poll, Spider-Man and Hawkman as Spider-Hawk, which would have been more fun if it was Spider-Man and Tony Hawk, a skateboarding Spider-Man. Do Spider-Hawk that way. Can't miss. That was 11% of the vote only. But what was fun is that then the Wizard World subscribers sent in their own ideas, basically saying, like, Wizard, we had some better thoughts for you here. So these are the amalgam ideas from the readers. What's the first one here, Ben? Wow, we, we start off strong with Batmite plus Morpheus, the Sandman, plus Power Man plus Phantom Stranger equals the Mighty Morpheus Power Stranger. Wow. <laughs> very clever, very 90s. Yes. Uh, this next one cracks me up. It's right up there with Wolverine. We have Silver Surfer and Hardware, yes, from that wonderful universe that maybe didn't get enough attention back in the 90s. But Silver Surfer and Hardware to form Silverware. <laughs> this reminds me of the Ironside one from above. Green Lantern and Giant Man as Green Giant. Ho, ho, ho. Next up, Howard the Duck and Darkseid. Everybody wanted to combine Darkseid with people into Duckseid. That ain't bad. Not bad at all. In one that they probably couldn't get away with today, Daredevil plus the Ray as Ray Charles. <laughs> uh, and finally, the Hulk and Lobo as Hobo. Not a term that anybody uses anymore. No, but I like that one. Yeah. That one made me chuckle. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, if any of those books had gotten made, it may have been a headline. So, Ben, we're going to check out some... So our top headline tonight, Wizard reports that a crossover event called Onslaught, named for the main villain of the story, will act as a lead-in to the Lee Liefeld reboots at Marvel Comics announced last issue. X-Men scribes Mark Wade and Scott Lobdell are working together to tell the tale. As Lobdell explains, the X-Men never had their own Galactus-type character. We've had Sinister and Apocalypse, and to a greater or lesser extent, Magneto, but these characters are plotters. What I was after was a character who could take the X-Men's butts and wrap them around their collective shoulders. 
Though the arrival of the Onslaught character will be featured in the X-Books, the big reveals will be set in the one-shot titles Onslaught X-Men and Onslaught Marvel Universe. Interestingly, it's reported that the Lee Liefeld reboot comics will be published under the unfinished business banner as opposed to the actual title of Heroes Reborn. Now, I got to tell you something funny about this. So I was not reading the Onslaught. I I was not getting ready for Heroes Reborn. None of it appealed to me at this time. I had just discovered Mike Allred's Madman, and so I was on that train 100%. But former Toy Fair editor Justin Acklin last year was, like, selling off some of his comic. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, and so, like, I got in on that. I was like, oh, send me your list. And so I got those two, the both of those Onslaught books, so that I could be caught up for the show. So thanks, Justin, for helping us with our research. But how about you, Ben? You said you remember Onslaught happening, but did you read it at the time? Onslaught was the jumping off point for me. It was when I decided, all right, they're doing another big story. I don't want to get committed to this. So I'm going to kind of gently ease my way out of comics. And I remember it very distinctly because in another Wizard tie-in here, when I first started working for Wizard in 2004 and I had access to the Wizard Library, the very first thing I took out of the Wizard Library was these gold embossed Onslaught trade paperbacks because I was like, I'm going to catch up on all the stuff I missed. So when I was living in efficiency, they called it, it was basically a souped up hotel room about five minutes away from Wizard, didn't have any friends yet, didn't have anyone in the area. What I would literally do after I got done with a hard day of research assistant work at Wizard is I would take the Onslaught books back to my hotel room and just consume them. So it was the very first thing I read as a Wizard contributor. Wow, that's wild. Do you remember your takeaway from that first read? Did you feel like you had missed something? No. Not at all. This felt like if Age of Apocalypse was kind of like the high watermark for X-Men in the 90s, like the coolest thing they could do, Onslaught felt like to me, the lamest thing they could do. (laughs) So forced and the whole Professor X and Magneto combined into one super duper villain who then becomes his own thing. It didn't grab me at all. And then it felt like an X-Men story that they had to tack the Avengers and Fantastic Four on at the very last second. And I know Mark Wade wrote Onslaught Marvel Universe. I remember thinking, this is a good comic. Like, it's, it's, it's decent, it's well-paced, and it's definitely competently handled. But man, I had no sense of regret when I read Onslaught eight years later that I had missed something as a kid. Yeah, well, and I will tell you, so, you know, Rob Liefeld... Oh! has his Rob Observations podcast and in his big four-part series, he said that they were working on it for a long time just to bring the two of them back to do their whole, you know, reboot of the books and things like that. And that, you know, it was Marvel editorial that eventually came in and said, well, no, you know, we got to basically have an exit strategy. We got to be able to go back to our universe. So Onslaught was kind of like, it seemed like it was cobbled together very quickly <laughs> in order to have that, oh, it's a pocket universe now. Yeah, I listened to the same Rob Observations podcast as you did, and definitely that's his story, and I guess he's sticking to it. <laughs> but uh, speaking of Marvel and what was going on at that time and why they needed to bring in the old talent, they were continuing to drop more books from their line as well as editors from the staff. The latest round of cuts at this time included titles like New Warriors, Green Goblin, oh, he is such a short-lived life, and every book in the 2099 line, which is a dagger through my heart. Although they say that a single double-sized book called 2099 featuring the stories of the futuristic Marvel heroes will come 
out. Now, on the editorial chopping block were Bob Budiansky, who had just been heading up the Spider-Man titles, and Joey Cavallari, who had been the head of the 2099 books from their launch in 1993. So, sad to see those guys go. But Ben, recently, we urged your ire online during a poll uh, that we did on Twitter about what is your favorite teen super team from the 90s, and we omitted the new warriors. Now, were you reading the book up to its point here at cancellation? If Onslaught was one kind of nail in the coffin as far as getting you away from comics for a little bit, the cancellation of New Warriors was the other. It ended with issue 75. I was there all the way till the end. It had been handed off at this point. Fabian Nicieza was no longer writing it. Evan Skolnick was writing it. But yeah, I was a loyal New Warriors reader till the bitter, bitter end. The last issue is actually pretty good. It has early uh, Patrick Zercher art and kind of gets all the characters back to where they needed to be. But yeah, man, this was something that fueled my exit from comic collecting. I was so, uh, I don't know if it was more, I was outraged that New Warriors was canceled or I was or I was more relieved that I was like, oh, New Warriors is canceled. I can hop out of here now. Well, see, yeah, my, my best friend has a similar story because he was reading New Mutants religiously from the beginning. And then as soon as it transitioned into X-Force, and, and he said also Louise Simonson was killing off a lot of characters in the book or something. He's like, yeah, so that drove me out. So it's just like, yeah, they get rid of your favorite book. What are you going to do? right it just offers you an excuse it's a jumping off point you know it's 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 a good reason to be like all right well i guess i guess i'm out of here all right why don't you take the next one here Sure thing. So Dan Jurgens provides more details as to his departure from Sensational Spider-Man after only six issues, said, I submitted my resignation before Christmas. When Marvel brought me into this, we signed a letter of intent to do six issues. In this case, based on the things that were happening with the character and the editorial relationship, I decided not to renew the agreement. Jurgens is instead returning to DC Comics to work on a new Teen Titans book with George Perez. Jurgens will write and do the page breakdowns while Perez does the finishes on the book. The only team member on the roster revealed at this time is the Adam, who had been de-aged during Zero Hour. So obviously, Dan Jurgens had this in his back pocket for a little bit, yeah. been the guy who de-aged the Adam in the first place. Wow, look at that. Zero Hour actually mattered. Sort of. <laughs> so question for you, Ben. Were you on the DC side at all? You're dedicated to do Warriors here, but like you're on your way out. Did you hear any rumblings of Dan Jurgens going to Teen Titans? Would that have mattered to you? Uh, not at the time. I was a pretty diehard Marvel kid, so I mostly read Marvel books. But years and years later, Wolfman and Perez's new Teen Titans became one of my favorite comics of all time. I collected it in back issues when I was in college, and I was pretty devoted to it. Interestingly enough, I did not read the Dan Jurgens George Perez Teen Titans until this past year. Oh. Um, another former guest of this show, TJ Deach, and I were kind of rereading a bunch of old Titans comics. He and I were reading the tail end of the Wolfman era of Teen Titans, and when it ended, it goes, the next Teen Titans book is the Jurgens Teen Titans. I was like, you know what? I've never read this before. I've got DC Universe. I've got access to the issues. Let's check it out. And I actually read the whole series, and it was not bad. How, how long was he on that? How long did that run? I think it runs a little less than 20 issues. It only goes for about like a year, year and a half. So okay. it's, an easy, it's an easy read. I will say this. Perez only sticks around doing the finishes for the first 10 issues or so. And those issues are gorgeous. Like Dan Jurgens being essentially inked by George Perez is one of the best combinations I think I've ever seen in terms of just like classic 
superhero artist. So it looks really good. A lot of the writing is a little dated. It's very 90s, but the book looks great and the ideas are cool. And Jurgens really, he he goes all out. And um, I mean, I read his Sensational Spider-Man. I wasn't blown away by it. I think this was probably the right choice for him to jump away from Spidey and head back to DC to do Teen Titans. All right. Well, that's good to know. Yeah, something to look up for people that uh, maybe didn't see it at the time. Next up here, we have an announcement about Six Flags theme parks. They are going to be building a Superman ride at their California location, Magic Mountain, since the Batman ride had been such a tremendous success. So it's called Superman the Escape, and it will blast riders 41 stories in the air, reaching a speed of 100 miles per hour in seven seconds, then fall backwards down the tower track giving writers a sense of weightlessness on the way down now this was right in my backyard magic mountain you know so i'm curious though for you have you ever ridden the superman ride ben so i used to every summer as part of my summer camp sleepaway camp that i went to we went to what was originally called riverside in massachusetts um, and it became six flags new england so i was definitely going to six flags on a pretty regular basis when I was a kid. I don't remember ever going on the Superman ride. And I think that's the type of detail that I would probably recall. Right. So so my sense is it probably went in either after I was kind of aged out of that, or it was just my pretty much fear of roller coasters at the time prohibited me from riding such an extreme ride well and i will tell you it is terrifying i only rode it once and that was more than enough because you're leaning back you are up so high 41 stories in the air and when you get to the top it's kind of like that scene in the first superman movie where he's standing on the side of the building looking down at the cat burglar so you got this big superman statue staring at you but by the time i wrote it i think it had been around for like two years or something and the face was all like cracked and sun damaged and it was just it looked like bizarro i was just gonna say it looks like bizarro <laughs> yeah and it was really freaky and just like yeah that whole feeling of being because it stops for a second while you're at the top and i was just like oh so yeah plus my wife loves to remind me every time i don't know why she's obsessed with this but there was an accident on that ride where a cable snapped and it actually cut off people's feet at the ankles oh, everything about this sounds terrible yeah <laughs> I, I, I would never be seeking out this ride now speaking of superman though it's reported that uh, Superman co-creator Jerry Siegel had passed away on January 29th, 1996 at the age of 81. Wizard promises a tribute in the next issue, so we'll give you more details at that time. Now, next story here real quick, though, a a follow-up to a previous report about Mirage Studios ceasing publication of all their Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles comics. It's now revealed that the Turtles will have a temporary home at Image Comics through Eric Larson's Highbrow Entertainment in a miniseries called Body Count. And Larson says, quote, I have some ideas, none of which or all of which may happen. I want to kill off a major character. I want to modify the character's physical attributes somehow, possibly through disfigurement, such as a scar. I want to bring the characters out of their teens and age them up somehow, end quote. So uh, Leonardo and Raphael will also have a crossover with Trent Kanuga's Creed at Lightning Comics this month. So it feels like at this time, even though, you know, the home studio wasn't doing it anymore, the Turtle Boys were getting around. But I have to ask you, Ben, did you ever get your hands on some Ninja Turtles comics? Were you interested? I never read the uh, original Mirage, Eastman, and Laird stuff, but I did have a subscription to the Archie series 
that was more based on the cartoons. And I was heavily into the cartoons. So I didn't really know the source material that well, but I definitely have a lot of Ninja Turtles comics and toys at home. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, that Archie series definitely went its own way, and it was really interesting. I, I would always pick it up. My friend had a subscription, so I would just read them at his house. But I, the only comic I really read of the Ninja Turtles was the movie adaptation, and so I read and reread that over and over again. And I recently just picked up the second version that was actually like Eastman and Laird's version, where they kind of expand out and do it their own way, uh, since it's all in black and white and stuff. So that was kind of cool. I do remember this new story though I, like i remember very distinctly mirage shutting down and the ninja turtles going to image specifically under eric larson i don't think i followed it but i remember it happening so it was a big deal yeah for sure and speaking of endings finally it's reported that the hernandez bros gilbert Aime, and mario are bringing their love and rockets anthology series to a close with issue number 50 this celebrated black and white indie comic had been published for 14 years at this point gilbert already had a deal to publish a miniseries called Girl Crazy at Dark Horse, while Jaime was just trying to make the deadline for issue 50, saying his next project will probably follow the lives of a couple of characters from this series and introduce new characters and surroundings for them. I tell you who, but I don't really know at this point, he said. Uh, the Hernandez Bros have continued creating and publishing their own comics to this day. Adam, do you have a favorite project from uh, Los Hernandez Bros? Yeah, so I uh, I definitely came to them later. Like, I have Comic Book Confidential, that old documentary, where they get interviewed in there, and I always thought that was cool to see, like, what they did. And so, like, I started reading Love and Rockets, actually, when I first got on Comixology, because they were free. <laughs> you could download them for free and so i was like oh let me check these out and i really liked when they got like much later on they kind of took their characters and put them in like a superhero world which i thought was kind of fun also like the, the world of female wrestling i know you're a wrestling fan oh yeah that's a really interesting story they have going on. And then I know like they've done like full on series with that. There was a book that just came out recently. So I just think uh, they definitely take subject matter that maybe you don't see often in comics. And you're like, okay, let me see what's going on here. So yeah, those probably be the two for me. How about you? I have to admit that the Hernandez brothers are a big blind spot for me. Um, there was a period where I was going back and reading a lot of kind of classic indie comics a lot of like underground stuff because i've always been like just diehard superhero i went and read a bunch of indie stuff that i really really enjoyed and i feel like i should have gotten to love and rockets but i never did so maybe it's something i still need to check out at some point if nothing else it's just i don't know it's, it's almost like a palette cleanser you know just the black and white and everything else it just feels kind of extra special but yeah so for those of you who are fans of los hernandez bros why don't you tell us Tell us what we should be reading. What are the best series? But now we are going to get deeper into this issue, Ben, at our table of contents. Because issue 56 of Wizard, featuring an April 1996 cover date, had two versions. Now, the first was a bloody Wolverine cover drawn by Bart Sears in 1993, wherein Logan had killed Omega Red, Mystique, Sabretooth, and Silver Samurai. You could just see, like, pieces of their bodies surrounded by blood on the cover but that was originally deemed too violent by marvel when it was commissioned so now i guess with all that was going on in the world of comics you're like yeah this is nothing <laughs> just put it up there the other cover was a gary frank illustration of dark claw from the amalgam universe which is also included as a poster in the issue and was backed by the first brian ahern illustrated calendar which would become a mainstay of the magazine going forward were you a fan of those calendars 
calendars? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I would put them up in my room and that's how I would keep track of time and appointments and uh, everything I needed to get done was done based on wizard calendars. Yeah, it was just just a fresh illustration style. I I like them a lot. Now, this issue also came polybagged with a Wizard Clear Chrome Angela trading card and an America Online subscription disc. Of course. Yeah, gotta have it. (laughs) Plus an offer for a Lady Rawhide half comic. Did you stock up on half issues when you went to Wizard? Like, is that something you found in the warehouse? For sure. There was just so many unopened boxes that we would tear into and find old one half issues. I didn't pick up Lady Rawhide. I tended to go with the Marvel DC and image stuff. I definitely remember from when I was a kid, I had a, I think a Stormwatch one half. Uh, So I definitely have that. But yeah, years later, I was just like, I was all about grabbing the one half issues that I didn't get as a kid. Ah, the benefits of working at Wizard. Indeed. (laughs) Now, uh, getting back into the world of Amalgam here, the cover story, Come Together, spills the beans on the 12 Amalgam titles being published and the all-star creative teams behind them. Now, the biggest revelation here, though, is that the original name for this intercompany combined universe was Fusion. But it turned out the name was already taken because during the glut, you know, of 1993, I think every name was copyrighted in the world of comics. But what do you think about that name? Do you like Fusion or Amalgam better? I prefer Amalgam. And kind of a fun fact is that when I got to Wizard, all of a sudden, you know, because I growing up, I had some friends who were comic book fans, but not a ton. Suddenly being around people who loved comic books all the time, you found yourself saying words out loud that you hadn't said out loud in years (laughs) previous. And you found out that, you know, in your head, you may have been mispronouncing them for years and years. I know that my first good friend at Wizard, Dylan Brucey, who was the staff photographer, definitely mispronounced Magneto as Magneto uh, (laughs) for years and years. And then for me specifically, I think I might have known better at this point, but definitely when I was a kid, I thought it was Amalgam. Wow. Which sounds fantastic. Yeah. (laughs) Sounds like a dental condition or something. But I think Amalgam is cooler than Fusion. Fusion is so generic. Amalgam is like, no one knew that word. It was like comic fans were learning it for the first time in 1996. It felt like something that was cool and exclusive to us. Yeah, I would totally agree. I mean, there was definitely something where it just grows on you after a while. You know, is it Amalgam? Is it Amalgam? But let's get into a little bit of a breakdown here of the books for those who maybe weren't reading them or didn't read all of them at the time. Might be a few for you to seek out. So uh, we just were talking about uh, Mark Wade, and he was teaming with Dave Gibbons, oh, Dave Gibbons, to bring us Super Soldier, which the writer describes as, quote, Captain America with heat vision. <laughs> Is that the only difference? Yeah, that big shock of blonde hair coming out the top and everything. Well, yeah, the Superman symbol is a shield, which is... yeah. Uh pretty big visual difference. Now, Carl Kiesel and Mike Waringo were excited about their work on Spider-Boy, which is definitely my favorite at the time. Totally. Kiesel explaining, quote, when I finished this one, I said, damn, I wish I had this much fun every month. I was hardcore into Superboy. It was one of my favorite books, um, probably my favorite DC book. And Carl Kiesel was one of my favorite writers. And then Mike Waringo was everything he drew look amazing. So, yes, yeah, Spider-Boy was an early favorite of mine. I was like, this is this is going to be a really good one. All right. What else did they have going on, Ben? Larry Hama and Jim Ballant handled The Legend of the Dark Claw, where Jubilee and Robin merged into the teen sidekick Sparrow and Carol Danvers 
was the Huntress. Mark Wade and Jeff Matsuda were the team behind Magneto and the Magnetic Men, which combined the Metal Men and the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. That was one of the, the weirder ones to me. It was. And I didn't get the combination at the time because I had like only like the most basic understanding of who the Metal Men were. So I was yeah, just same. like, I don't know what this book is. It, it was very weird. It, that was the kind of interesting thing about Amalgam is that it allowed these creators to kind of like go to the bench as far as characters they loved from when they were younger. So you saw concepts like the Metal Men, which weren't big in 1996, getting some love because probably Mark Wade, I'm, I'm sure Mark Wade loved the Metal Men. Yeah. <laughs> Just knowing Mark Wade. So yeah, that's really interesting. Marvel's Daredevil duo, so the Daredevil creative team of D.G. Chichester and Scott McDaniel handled Amalgam's resonant bad girls in Assassins, which featured a female version of Daredevil mixed with Deathstroke the Terminator and Elektra mixed with Catwoman, facing off against a hybrid of the Riddler and the Kingpin named The Big Question, which is revealed in a sidebar to originally have been called the big clown. And I remember feeling very confused as a young teenager about how I was supposed to feel about this sexy female version of Daredevil yeah. and Death <laughs> being drawn by Scott McDaniel. It definitely gave me some pause. <laughs> now, uh, next up here, Chuck Dixon and Carrie Nord went undercover on Bruce Wayne, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., doing their best riff on Jim Steranko era Nick Fury stories, which is just, it's a cool concept. I love that cover of that particular book. It looks great. Yeah, they did a lot of cool stuff with the supporting cast, too, like mixing up the Bruce Wayne and Nick Fury supporting characters. Now, Howard Mackey and Salvador LaRocca brought Speed Demon to life, uh, while Carl and Barbara Kiesel wrote X-Patrol with Roger Cruz on art chores. So do you think you were more down with X-Patrol or Speed Demon? Which one caught your attention? I mean, I was an X-Force guy, and X-Patrol felt like they used a lot of like the X-Force characters, combining them with Doom Patrol, obviously, which I had, again, like with the Metal Men, I had no idea who Doom Patrol was. They were a weird Vertigo book that I never paid attention to, so I didn't know who they were but I really liked it. And I, if I recall correctly, the villain in X-Patrol was Dr. Doomsday. Yeah. Who was the, the bizarre combo of Dr. Doom and Doomsday, which I just <laughs> could not get enough of. I thought that was phenomenal. So yeah, and I, I, even though I liked The Flash, I wasn't really interested in Speed Demon. Um, so definitely X-Patrol for me. X-Men favorites John Byrne and Terry Austin reteamed for Amazon, which was Aurora Monroe as Storm becoming Wonder Woman, which is just really interesting because it wasn't a full mashup because you had Diana Prince busy having adventures with her husband Trevor Castle, a.k.a. the Blonde Punisher, in John Ostrander and Gary Frank's Bullets and Bracelets book. You know, it's funny, until I read this issue back when you sent it to me, I had no idea that John Byrne participated in Amalgam. I knew he was doing Wonder Woman, oh. but I would have thought he would have, just knowing the reputation of John Byrne, and usually when he's at DC, he's pissed off at Marvel. When he's at Marvel, he's pissed off at DC. So I was shocked that he actually did a book, and not only that, he did a book involving Storm, one of the X-Men characters. I had totally forgotten about the creative team behind Amazon. Yeah, well, and I think also with him, since he's like the ultimate fanboy, that's what this is, right? Like, this is like fanboy dream. And he's like, I can do whatever I want? Okay. That's kind of his bread and butter. If you give him carte blanche, he'll go for it. Totally. The wonderfully titled... Dr. Strange Fate by Ron Mars and the great Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. They got some really big name artists on a lot of yeah. these, which is really cool. Featured a main character who is pretty much an aloof 
bastard, according to the writer, but in a story that is very tied to the merging of the universes. Then we got, I mentioned this earlier, JLX by Mark Wade and Howard Porter combined the X-Men and the Justice League of America. The most notable mashup on this team being Namor and Aquaman being combined into the Mariner. Wonder how Kevin Costner from Waterworld feels about that. <laughs> Though there is no guarantee of a sequel, John Byrne, Rod Mars, and Carl Kiesel all declare that they would be up to return to the Amalgam Universe, about which DC editor Mike Carlin says, on this stuff, I never say never. Ooh, and we did get a second round. Oh, and I think some of the second round books are even better than the originals so absolutely do you have a favorite from that run that comes to mind that second time around remember the uh the spider boy one was good the jlx one was good but i think far and away the best one was i i believe this was illustrated by john ramita jr it was uh thor ryan yes up of thor and orion which again like that's printing money right there that was one i did not pick up back in the day because all three factors going against it i had never read new gods i didn't really care about thor and you hate john ramita jr (laughs) so yeah (laughs) so so yeah it had all of those things going against it for you but i don't remember the book at all i just i I, if you ask me to name the second round of amalgams like that's the one i remember just because it stood out because it was so weird yeah the one that always caught my attention even though the story was just okay was iron land turn yeah that's pretty out there because i was like that just makes sense it just looks good it did look very cool all right so next up we have an interview with creator of she billy tucci whose book had risen to number one on the wizard top 10 list in issue 54 but by this point had dropped to number five in the rankings now i actually had uh covered all the topics and used this interview you know kind of as a basis for my discussion with mr tucci on the wizard file so you could go back and check that in the archives if you want to find out all the details we really expanded but i'm just curious did you give she a chance or any other bad girl books in the 90s i gave all the bad girl stuff a hard pass i felt honestly uncomfortable with it i was like i already felt weird enough about being a comic book fan as an early teenager coming home and trying to you know my mom's giving me a ride to the comic book store having lady death or she or lady rawhide uh, on the cover just I didn't want to explain it, so I stayed away from the bad girl <laughs> books. I stayed with the tried and true superhero stuff and never really uh, never really got back into that stuff. Yeah, it's interesting. The majority of people that we've had as guests on our show, they've actually said they did not read bad girl books. Like, it just, I don't know who was reading them, but they were obviously selling. Brian Cunningham, probably. <laughs> so, Fit to Print is an interesting list. This is the next feature. Um, an interesting list of 10 tips for fans who wanted to have their correspondence printed in comic book letters columns with advice coming from regularly published fans and assistant editors who review all the mail, uh, which I thought was really cool. This, I, I remember this article as well. Aside from suggestions like the value of typing your letters and being persistent and sending to many different publishers, hot letter hacks include ideas like avoid the word sucks and <laughs> have a point. <laughs> But also the suggestion to study what kind of letters get printed and copy what works while showing you have a sense of humor or at least a personality. Now, did you ever write a letter to a comic book or to Wizard or anywhere that you wanted to share your opinion or did you get into online discourse? So tying into this era and stuff we've already discussed on this episode, I wrote to, it doesn't really count as a comic, but do you remember Marvel Vision? Oh, yeah. I felt like it was the successor to Marvel Age. 
Uh, it was just like Marvel's in-house kind of marketing catalog. Mm -hmm. I wrote a letter to Marvel Vision that got printed expressing my anger over New Warriors getting canceled. Wow. So it all comes full circle. That was, I think, the only letter that I ever had printed in a comic book was basically me just complaining about them canceling New Warriors. It was one of the last things I read. Again, I'm phasing out of comics at this point, but for some reason, I don't know if it was because I had a long drive on a family vacation or something, but I picked up Marvel Vision and I flipped in and saw, hey, here's my letter forever immortalizing me as being that that cranky New Warriors fan who couldn't let go of the book. Wow, that is awesome. I love that. <laughs> Next up here, uh, there is a preview of the fully painted Spider-Man Legacy of Evil comic by Kurt Busiek and Mark Texera. I bought this off the shelf back in 96. Anything painted, right? You know, it's just like Marvels and this. Okay, so I've had it in my long box all these years. But uh, this next article here is called Sonic Youth. Uh, did we mention this was 1996? Focuses on the history of teen super teams and is what actually inspired our Twitter poll. Notice who is not mentioned here at all in this article, Ben. Yeah, they even have a picture of Disco Nightwing. Granted, Nightwing is very important to the evolution of the teen superhero, but no, you're right. The the New Warriors are completely omitted from the teens for the 90s section. So um, is this where I get to make my case why the New Warriors were better than Gen 13 who won your poll? That is correct. Let's hear it. Tell us what we were missing. I mean, look, if you actually go back and read New Warriors Volume 1, particularly those first 25, 50 issues from Fabian Nicieza, it's like heavy stuff. I would say it's actually like, if you like New Teen Titans from the 80s, New Warriors is the 90s version of New Teen Titans. It's teenage characters being written well. They don't sound cliched or ridiculous. They're dealing with real issues. As a kid, I loved reading this comic. And I mean, no offense to Gen 13, but Gen 13 to me was basically just, it was, it was all, it was all flash and no substance. It looked great. J. Scott Campbell and the other people who drew it were geniuses. The characters were likable enough, but they didn't have the depth that something like New Warriors, New Mutants, uh, New Teen Titans, anything else with new in the title uh, <laughs> had. And I'll, I'll say this is that, you know, when I was at Marvel, they tried to bring back New Warriors every couple years and they could never recapture the magic. And I can't remember the last time they tried to bring back Gen 13 other than uh, Fairchild being a supporting character in the New 52, which is probably the less we talk about it, the better. Uh, but yeah, I just think New Warriors has had a sticking power where fans have tried to bring it back multiple times. Gen 13, fondly remembered, but just didn't have the impact for me. Yeah, and, and I will say, you know, I sort of paid attention to New Warriors back in the day because, you know, when, like, Darkhawk joined the team, or, mm. oh, Firestar is on the team now, you know, like, yeah. I would get excited by different roster changes, but then I'd look at somebody like Turbo, and I'm oh. like, you have fans on your wrists. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know if that works for me. I will say this, they've never been able to recapture the magic of those initial 50 issues. I feel like New Warriors is probably a concept that its time has come and gone. If Fabian Nicieza said, I'm going to write a New Warriors comic, I would be all about it. But I know Fabian Nicieza, and I know he's never going to write another New Warriors comic. <laughs> So, um, well, the only other thing I think it's like the lasting legacy of the new warriors, their last big hurrah was being the screw ups that caused civil war, which believe me, if you had known me at the time, I was very upset about that being <laughs> a lasting legacy, what they did to speedball. Uh, that was a, 
That was a horrible time for New Warriors fans. (laughs) Not a Penance fan, huh? Not a Penance fan. Well, you know, the other side of this, too, is, you know, when you have teenage characters, they wanted to kind of ask the creators, well, what do you do to keep them relevant and keep them modern and hip, you know? And so there's a sidebar where they interview, you know, J. Scott Campbell and, you know, these other people who are writing and and drawing. And basically, it just came down to, well, we have teen fashion magazines in the studio, which is kind of creepy, you know? (laughs) But most of these were, you know, 20-year-old guys. Yeah, I guess they, they, they could get away with it. Yeah. <laughs> but outside of the New Warriors, did you have a favorite teen book? Um, I was a pretty devoted X-Force fan. When New Warriors and X-Force crossed over for Child's Play, brilliantly titled, I thought that was a lot of fun. But I would generally give most teen heroes a try. Although it seems like with the DC characters, I wasn't in, into the Titans, but I liked Superboy on his own. I liked Robin on his own. I liked Impulse on his own. If I had kept reading for a couple more years, I probably would have been very into Young Justice, which I ended up reading in retrospect after it came out. And man, if you've never read Young Justice, what a great book not superboy of the ravers oh i did i did pick up the first couple issues of superboy <laughs> and the ravers absolutely yeah they were that was drawn by paul pelletier but yeah teen superheroes has always been my wheelhouse i would eventually come around to the new teen titans i love the legion of superheroes really any i'm, I'm trying to, i'm i'm struggling to think of a prominent marvel or dc teen heat team that i didn't like at some point so i usually would give most of them a chance not fantastic force I didn't read the Force, so that's where I drew the line, I guess. Fair enough. All right. Well, you know, we're going to kind of go in a different direction here now, moving away from those American comics, because this next article here is called uh, Understanding Manga. What can you tell us about this, Ben? So it's a Scott McCloud article in the style of his Understanding Comics book, which is very well known and very much beloved by anyone who uh, likes comics. It explains the advantages of manga over American comics, so... Some of these features include the fact that manga is serialized in volumes totaling hundreds of pages, which allows the readers to live in the world of the characters. Also cited is the use of realistic backgrounds, parallel motion lines, and many silent panels without dialogue. I think you're going to post the feature to social media for so people can check this out. Definitely, yeah. It's definitely a visual guide. But, you know, obviously you're over there at the Wizard offices. You got the Anime Insiders. You know, they're going to tell you all about these manga titles. Did they convert you? Did they get you into the world of Japanese uh, animation and comics? They certainly tried. Um, it was not successful. Uh, I never really got into manga or anime. It's funny because I actually now, uh, one of the things I do at UNLV is I work with Beasley Media, who's a media group, on a show called Checkpoint XP on campus. And it's me and a group of college students. Well, I mean, I'm behind the scenes. The college students are in front of the camera and they're talking about college esports, so competitive video games. Wow, yeah. And they are so on. They're all into anime. They're all into manga. And they are like full court press, reminiscent of the Anime Insider guys from <laughs> you know 15 years ago, trying to get me to. They want me to watch. A Hero Academia. They want to get me into all of this anime and manga. So I think at some point in the near future, I'm finally going to take the dive. So if anyone from Anime Insider 
is listening to this podcast, know that your efforts were for naught back in the mid 2000s, but your protégés, the next generation, might be able to get it done. Oh, well, we'll see here because, yeah, the, the seeds were definitely being planted at this time because as a companion piece to that article, American Manga features interviews with American comics artists who have infused a manga style into their work to great acclaim. Uh, first up is the X-Men wonderkind Joe Maderera, who cites Masamune Shiro's Ghost in the Shell as an influence, even uh, admitting to giving a hairstyle from that story to Rogue in Age of Apocalypse, which I never knew. Hmm. Joe Mad had even gone so far as to do an actual ninja storyline in X-Men comics at this point. He says, quote, slowly but surely, we'll transform X-Men into a cool manga book. <laughs> X-Men felt like a manga. It felt like a natural place for all that energy, though. Because when Joe Mad was doing that stuff, like, it totally made sense. The visuals made sense. The the general energy of the stories just seemed to lend itself well to X-Men. Now, J. Scott Campbell on the other side admits, quote, I'm kind of attracted to big eyes and cute features. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. <laughs> but says, quote, it's only one component of his love for animation in general. Campbell also points to Masamune Shiro as his main Japanese influence, but cites Gunsmith Cats and Battle Angel as his favorite anime features. Uh, now, Art Adams is not so specific about his manga or anime influences. Quote, I just saw Japanese comics and I liked him. Okay, thanks for nothing, Art. We'll talk to you <laughs> later. Uh, but he does, again, name Masamune Shiro's earlier work, Jeez. like Appleseed, Orion, and Dominion, his favorite read. So that's the starting place, everybody. <laughs> Find this guy's work. Uh, now, Scott McCloud shows up again and states his theory that, quote, manga could be the key to revolutionizing the industry. And the fact, really, at that point, it's already happening, and it has happened now, for sure. Says McCloud, quote, you could go back to every single book on the stands in the early 80s and never see the manga technique of subjective motion. You see it now routinely, especially in image comics, where you see it constantly. Uh, McCloud also laments that, quote, it bothers me a lot that there's been so much talk about Japanese animation affecting comics and not nearly enough study of the manga themselves, which were the influence for the anime. We, we can relate as comic book fans watching the MCU explode and realizing how many people have not read the source material, right? Oh, brother, tell me about it. <laughs> Uh, now, truth be told, there is a major manga influence on comics from 1996 to 2000 specifically, and it, that's what seems to be creating the buzz, you know, especially with Joe Mad in particular with Battle Chasers or whatever else, you know. Uh, but the artists here are skeptical about whether that injection of Japanese aesthetics will, in fact, save the industry. So uh, Art Adams notes, quote, The things that are wrong with American comics are not the storytelling and the artwork, but too much corporate thinking, sales gimmicks, too many comic books being written by editors, and the general treatment of creative people. Is that just all business? <laughs> not just the comic business? Yeah, I mean, I think so, especially in the 90s. Yeah, I, I don't think that... Japanese influence was ever going to be the magic bullet to cure what was wrong with the comic scene around this time. I do like to think that we, I mean, whatever, there are still people to this day who say that comics need to be saved. Getting right past this, getting to an area you'll probably cover in the next few years is when things really start to seem to get good again. Um, probably a little bit on the other side, on the other side of the bankruptcy, on the other side of uh, Heroes Reborn, Marvel starts to get really strong again. I just, just think, I just think about books that I really really like like the ultimate line or on the dc side something like jsa kurt busick's avengers and george perez's avengers is right around the corner so i don't think that any of those necessarily grew out of manga 
uh, influence, but they were all good things that did end up saving the industry to some some degree. Yeah, like you say, maybe it just kind of helped them uh, coast along a little bit. It was that excitement for a little bit of time until we were getting back to the best of American-style comics. All right, well, you know, uh, there's been a lot of movies coming around these days based on comics. Some of them were based on manga and, and anime, not so many on these shores. I think, uh, what, Battle Angel Alita didn't quite get everybody excited uh <laughs> but uh let's check out what the movie and tv rumors were in 1996 with heroes in motion Marvel movies and animation are the main topic this time around in Wizards Trailer Park section. Always like that as a name of a section. First up, we get some details on the X-Men movie script mentioned in issue 54. Says producer Lauren Schuler Donner. So Wolverine is really the centerpiece. It's how and why Wolverine becomes an X-Man and is the motivation to turn a lone wolf into an almost team player. And one of you guys' listeners, Craig Groff Folsom, actually tipped you off that the script can be read online. And you said it was very different from the 2000 film. Yeah, it's, it's definitely got a little bit of a different vibe. I mean, again, it started as a script by the guy who wrote Seven. So it kind mm-hmm. of has a little bit of a, I don't, I don't want to say like dark, dark tone, but it's a little edgier than, I, than what we got in 2000 ultimately. The opening scene to me is the most interesting because you have Wolverine going to meet with some sort of crime boss to be hired as like an assassin. That's at least what the setup seems to be, but he's going through a metal detector. You know, there's all these different things that they're kind of, you get tipped off to his various powers in this introduction. So it's different than a cage fight. Yeah, I mean, first off, they use that gig in the Wolverine years later with metal detector. But I mean, I love the original X-Men movie, the 2000 film. I think it, you know, despite the fact that it, it didn't look like what we were used to, it definitely felt right for the feel. And I will say this, that the opening scene of X-Men 2000 with Magneto as a boy in the concentration camp, to me, is one of the better comic book movie opening scenes, just because it lets you know right off the bat, like, we're going to have some fun here, but this is also pretty serious and lets you know how heavy the mutant metaphor is in this movie. So... I'm glad they uh, went with what they eventually went with. Are you a fan of the original X-Men movies, Adam? Uh, I mean, I definitely see what you're saying about that opening scene, because it's so nice they used it twice, right? Uh, X-Men first class. (laughs) But I would say that the first two movies... I recognized like how important they were. Like people were like, we love X-Men now. But like you said, it wasn't what I wanted out of an X-Men movie. But when the third X-Men movie came out, I saw that multiple times in the theater while everybody else was saying it was terrible. I was like, Brett Ratner did a pretty good job with this. I don't think I wanted to see another Brian Singer X-Men film, honestly. I wanted like just a loud and fun comic booky movie. And that's what I feel the third one gave us. And then they're like, oh no, now we go to get a different direction. But I liked first class also so i was very happy with those mid those mid era x-men films <laughs> well i'm a guy who's been championing uh daredevil 2003 for well over a decade and a half so i'm not gonna throw any any stones at you for x-men last stand the director's cut yes uh no when a movie is perfect you don't <laughs> the director's cut daredevil i remember was out valentine's day 2003 i remember this well because i was single and me and my friend, Tim, who was also a comics nut, 
went and saw it and then thought it was so good that we convinced all our friends to go see it with us again the next day. So I saw Daredevil in the theaters to beat your X-Men last in the theaters. I saw Daredevil in the theaters back to back days when it opened and dragged all my friends to it who did not feel the same way as I did. <laughs> well, there you go. Now, the one thing, we brought this up last episode. We were talking about Crow City of Angels and then the original Crow. And there's that scene where, you know, Daredevil, the two Ds come out, right? And I was like, oh, totally ripped off from the Crow. All right. Well, Mark Stephen Johnson, who's the director, has gone on record as saying that was an homage to the Crow. Okay. It was literally, I mean, it's not a very clever homage but it was like he he owned it he didn't try to say no no i i have no idea where that came from he said like no that was straight up me wanting to do something like the crow because i love the crow well there you go okay next up here we're told about the silver surfer animated series that is slated for release in the fall of 1997 on fox while the incredible hulk animated series is going to run on the upn network also in late 97 now x-men on the fox kids you know saturday morning light up is getting a little bit more of a life six new episodes being produced by saban entertainment the creators of body war for power rangers they just took it over I guess uh, they said we could we could get a few more bucks out of this. <laughs> but a question to you, Ben: Did you watch the Silver Surfer series? I was aware of it. I don't recall actually sitting down and watching an episode. At this point, I was kind of, as I've said throughout this episode, I was kind of on the way out as far as my comics fandom. And Silver Surfer was never a huge favor for me. I do remember that it, I think it was done with all like CGI computer art. So I didn't really get into it. I remember watching some of the Hulk show on UPN. I certainly watched the X-Men all the way to the end. And these are the infamous six final episodes that, like you said, were done by Saban, who contracted it out to a different animation studio. So it looked vastly different than all the rest of the X-Men episodes, and not in a good way. So those final six episodes, they look terrible. But there is a episode called Descent, which is the origin of Mr. Sinister. And it's one of the more adult kind of like really cinematic episodes of uh, X-Men animated series. If you track down any the last episodes I'd recommend doing Descent. I think it's the second to last episode of the series. Oh, okay, because I thought you were going to bring up, because they also have that flashback World War II episode, right, where right. he teams up with Captain America. Which is written, I believe, by Len Wein. I think I remember seeing that in the credits, yeah. So I always love that. I really like Descent. So of all three of those, though, I was definitely off the X-Men train by 96, and Silver Surfer, I didn't know it existed until years later. I'm sure I read about it here, but it I just didn't have any knowledge of it. But The Incredible Hulk was definitely one. It was, you know, it mentions here it was playing on Sunday mornings. I definitely was watching it Sundays on the UPN network, the United Paramount Network. <laughs> oh, UPN was big for me because UPN was where SmackDown was. Um, UPN was eventually the home of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So I was watching all sorts of stuff on UVN. Give us the next one here, Ben. So the Spider-Man animated series is only in its second season at this time, but story editor and producer John Semper says they're already writing season five of the series with a third season ready to go with a 13-episode story arc called Sins of the Father. I remember this very well. Guest stars for season two include Doctor Strange with George Takai as Wong, Daredevil, Carnage, Black Cat, and the long overdue Green Goblin. Because they have the Hobgoblin come first. Yeah, voiced by Mark Hamill. Yeah, and actually Doctor Strange was voiced by, I can't remember the actor's name, but he was the Dean 
in Animal House. Yeah, John Vernon. There you go, John Vernon. Yeah. So, man, they had awesome voice talent on Spider-Man, the animated series. Not always what you would necessarily think of as comics accurate, but just fun. Like, George Takai as Wong is just fun. <laughs> I've gone back and revisited the X-Men animated series many times since my, my youth. I've never gone back and watched Spider-Man, so I don't know how well it would hold off. I know it's on Disney Plus, so the option's there, but I've never, I've never gone back and watched it. Yeah, I guess I, I, you know, I've gone back and watched sporadically. I have a couple episodes on VHS where they would collect, like, you know, story arcs, you know, the Venom and Supervillain Showdown or whatever they call it. But it's, yeah, it, to me, it's like what I think the storytelling is fine. It's just the, the video on the animation. Like, it, it's got some weird stuff where it looks all digitized and it, it's kind of odd that way visually to watch. But I remember at the time it felt like revolutionary. Like, look at all the buildings. They're CGI. You know? I remember thinking at the time that it didn't look as good as the X-Men series, which was weird because X-Men came out first. But I also don't think I just I didn't understand. I was too young to understand at the time that, like, you know, it wasn't about coming out first or second. It was about which animation house was doing which show. So I didn't I never really understood that. Yeah, well, and it's interesting to just the mention that the fact the the lead time that an animated series needs that they're working on season five yeah. and only the second season is out. The third season is ready but they just have to wait you know until it's it's ready for release that's wild so i can't and i still to this day can't believe that on a kid's saturday morning cartoon they somehow did carnage yeah <laughs> with some good crossovers in that episode too yeah so next here superman the animated series which everybody was anticipating we get a few more tidbits of information we're told it's going to be on this wb network the wwwb but it's supposed to be uh, hitting the airwaves in the fall of 1996 going to be 13 episodes of the first season and the first three episodes are actually combined into a 90 minute animated movie which is very apparent if you watch the first episode like i did a couple months back yeah i mean I was definitely in on Batman, the animated series, and I definitely came back for Justice League when it was the animated series, Justice League Unlimited. Um, Superman kind of fell into that crevice of I'm not reading comics right now. So I've never really watched it, but I've heard great things about Superman, the animated series. Yeah, the strange thing was, like, I was still watching, like, Animaniacs or, like, the Pinky and the Brain spinoff show on the Kids WB Network, but I always just avoided Superman. I watched a few episodes, and I was like, oh, I like Lois Lane. She's a cool character, but Superman did not interest me, so I didn't hang on there. The other thing that is interesting to note is they say here that there is a Metal Men animated series in development, and uh, Dan DiDio was part of the development team for this Metal Men animated series. He did an interview with our friends over on the Dollar Bin Bandits podcast, and he was talking all about it, how he was so excited, and then it didn't happen. He loves Metal Men. I worked with him a lot when I was at Wizard. Tadio was like very into like certain obscure characters. I mean, one thing he'll, I think he's publicly stated before, is that Tadio was a Marvel kid. Like He was not a DC kid at all, which was the irony of when he took over DC. Um, and I think like he was he was often pushing to make the DC characters seem more like the Marvel characters, but he had a great affection for like random concepts. Like I know he loved Omac and I know he loved Metal Men and was really I think he wrote a couple Metal Men uh comics so not surprised at all yeah well you know somebody else who loves omac is rob liefeld uh, and he was trying to get some stuff going in hollywood so what's this next bit of news 
The first draft of a script for Rob Liefeld's profit movie is rumored to be completed this month with TriStar Pictures planning a summer 1997 release. I guess I missed that. <laughs> the script is from the writing team of Ethan Reif and great name, Cyrus Vorice, who are touted as the writers of a sequel to Mighty, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers the movie and a script called Remote, neither of which are produced with their names attached. <laughs> the pair did go on to get writing credit on... Tales from the Crypt, Demon Knight, I remember that. Bulletproof Monk, The Russell Crowe, Robin Hood, and Kung Fu Panda. What an array of movies to be. Isn't that wild? Yes. Um, Liefeld's production partner, Brian Whitten at New Line, says, The take on profit is great. There's nothing like this in development. I buy that. It's a big sci-fi action movie, and we want to get someone like Arnold Schwarzenegger involved. Of course you do. And now you get Jake Gyllenhaal. That's yeah. the obvious correlation for the modern day. Schwarzenegger to Gyllenhaal. Gyllenhaal is today's Arnold Schwarzenegger. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, I'm just like, my head's still spinning from all the movies mentioned in this paragraph. Between yeah. the Morphin Power Rangers all the way to Tales from the Crypt, Demon Knight, and Kung Fu Panda. What skill it must take to, uh, what range one must have to, <laughs> to produce such an array of high quality films oh well uh finally here it's reported that batman forever was the top grossing movie of 1995 with a 180 million dollar total box office only 180 million dollars that's all it took back then ben yeah yeah it beat apollo 13 and pocahontas Wow. Now, there is a precedent for that because the previous two Bat films were also the highest grossing of their respective years of release. Uh, but also more acclaim comes from the fact that Seal's Kiss from a Rose on the Batman Forever soundtrack was nominated for a Grammy as Record of the Year. I mean, that's an amazing song. Not according to my co-host. That might be the reason Michael is not with us tonight. He hates that song. I'll say this. I love karaoke and there are a number of songs I can sing decently with karaoke kiss from a rose is not one of them and yet i will try and try and try <laughs> every time because i love that song so much wow we need to see some video footage of that someday unlikely <laughs> now uh, also in batman and robin news uma thurman is finally mentioned as the front runner to play poison ivy this is after everyone from demi moore to sharon stone have been mentioned in the pages of wizard they finally got it right and it looks like that is what we're going with so everybody's very very excited now also here ben Mm-hmm. You were just talking about how much you love the Daredevil movie, but we're going to see with Wizard's casting call if it could have been even better. <laughs> For the record, I loved and hated the casting calls when I was a kid. You know what it is, Adam? Now, and having listened to Brian explain it on your show, mm-hmm. um, where they basically were like, we were not looking for character or performance at all. It was literally just who who had a picture that looked like the character. So when I was a kid, that was awesome. And then as I got into like college and stuff, I was like, these are terrible. <laughs> like, why, like, why are they casting Howie Long and like, you know, just random football player? And even as, even as a WWF fan, I was like, they picked the wrong wrestlers. It was just driving me nuts. But anyways, Daredevil casting call number 14, right out the gate. I actually think this is a pretty good one. They cast Brad Pitt as Daredevil, which they have a picture here from, the Man Without Fear limited series drawn by your your friend, John Romita Jr. Um, and Brad Pitt definitely looks the part. They That was one thing that they were very good at was finding, and this this I credit Dan Riley with, was matching the photo and the headshot from the comic. Yeah. 
They're very good at that. But um, yeah, man, I'd buy Brad Pitt as Daredevil. Why not? He's, he's a great actor. This isn't one of those times where they went like looks only. I mean, he's no Affleck, but <laughs> he could certainly hold his own. Let me just ask you this while we're on the subject. Batfleck or Affleck as Daredevil? What do you oh, like? Affleck as Daredevil all day long. Okay. No question. He was he was amazing as Daredevil. I, I don't I don't really care much for his Batman performance. <laughs> Okay, well, next year, uh, another recent face in superhero movies, Woody Harrelson, at this time touted as being from Natural Born Killers and Money Train. They want him to play Bullseye. And yes. Yeah, I, I would say they're two for two on that. I mean, have you seen him in Natural Born Killers? I'm still afraid to see that movie. I think that's a good audition, as good an audition as any for someone to play Bullseye. He's creepy. I think he could pull it off. But Colin Farrell delivered for you? Oh, absolutely. Colin Farrell's the greatest portrayal <laughs> of Bullseye in the history of film or TV. This one drove me nuts. This is one of the ones where I was like, they're not putting any effort into this one. They said Daisy Fuentes from MTV as Electra. What? No. To be fair, and I will be fair, Jennifer Garner is the weakest part of the Daredevil movie. So they never really got Electra right. But, I mean, Daisy Fuentes, come on. I mean, again, that's that's just the wizard guy's in the 90s sitting around and trying to think of who they thought was hot at the time basically yeah who do who you want to see in the red leotard all right daisy fuentes exactly but i think they did a fantastic job on getting matt murdoch's right hand man yes foggy nelson they wanted none other than andy richter the ed mcmahon of late night with conan o'brien not bad not bad at all this is actually one of the better casting calls in my opinion they're they're doing Pretty okay so far. All right, who's next here? Again, they're trying to hit my demographic. Obviously, Melrose Place is one of my favorite shows of all time. I own bootleg DVD copies of the entire series. Wow. I have watched it many times with my best friend, with my wife. Um, I, <laughs> I, I, I spread that Melrose Place gospel as much as I can. So casting Josie Bissett, who was never in anything else, um, to play Karen Page, and then finding, again, a picture of her that looks exactly like the art. Pretty spectacular. Good work, Dan. Yep, definitely. All right, next year, this one's just fun. Because for the Kingpin, they want John Rhys Davies. They say, look, John Rhys Davies played the Kingpin on a horrific Hulk TV movie a few years back, but he didn't shave his head. In our flick, he would. And a, a TV movie that featured Daredevil. Mm-hmm. The worst-looking Daredevil, uh, Rex Smith. I don't think he was bad for that era, but I think the costuming was unfortunate in Trial of the Incredible Hulk. Yeah. I do have to say one fun thing, though. I just got a bunch of old vinyl records from a friend today, and included in there is a Rex Smith solo album. I'm very curious to hear how Daredevil sounds singing. There you go, indeed. <laughs> Who's next? Ben Urich, the chain-smoking Daily Bugle reporter and good friend to Daredevil, they're casting Roy Scheider. They say from Sequest DSV. I feel like he was better known for a few movies. Yeah. But, um, that was that was their pick for Ben Urich. I can't say that I have strong feelings on Ben Urich one way or the other. I don't believe he was in the 2003 movie. Was it Joey Pants? He was Ben Urich. Was he ben Joe Pantoliano, yeah. The guy who sees the infamous flaming Ds in the right. reflection of his glasses. I did not know he was supposed to be Ben Urich. I don't know if they actually name him as such. But that might be one 
area where I will give the Netflix show the edge because uh, I really like their Ben Yurik. Yeah, that was great casting. Next up here for Stick, they want Lance Henriksen from Aliens, The Quick of the Dead. Come on, from Pumpkinhead. That's mm. what he's from. Weird credits this issue, like what they're choosing to credit these guys from. Yeah, but I think that's a pretty good take. You know, Scott Glenn is basically the poor man's Lance Henriksen anyway. Yeah, so I think that works out just fine. Typhoid Mary, Andy McDowell from Four Weddings and a Funeral and Unsung Heroes, would be able to show more range as the schizo killer who's always messing with Dee Dee's mind. Yeah, Andy McDowell to me screams like romantic comedy. That's not what we're going for with Typhoid Mary, in my opinion. Yeah, I honestly like Jennifer Jason Lee from Single White Ooh, Female, yeah. you know? Oh, that would be a great... I was going to say, I didn't know who I would cast, but that's that's an excellent idea. All right. For the ninjas, you want ninjas? Well, we got lots. We figured just borrow them from the American Ninja series. They won't mind. <laughs> that's a good wizard gag. Yeah. Then finally, to play the Punisher, this is kind of what I was talking about earlier. They had a fondness. I'm sure I'm sure this was a Pat McCallum call. WWF wrestler Razor Ramon, RIP, just passed away a few weeks ago, Scott Hall, has the look we need for Frank Castle. And besides, we all know those wrestlers sure can act. Um, <laughs> I mean, Scott Hall did look the part i'm not sure he has the chops to pull it off i actually i i will say that i like john barenthal as the punisher on the netflix shows very very much so uh, yeah no i don't i don't want to speak ill of uh of razor so i think he probably could have pulled it off but i'm not sure well what's interesting ben is that like a year prior to this in the magazine there was talk about a punisher series that was going to star a female punisher but there was going to be like a fright castle character at the beginning and they were hinting it was a top-tier WWF wrestler. We were trying to figure out who it could be, and here we see who was on their mind. That would have been interesting, for sure. Well, you know what else is interesting? Those guys over at Image Comics, they were still getting it done in 96, so it's time to rev up Jim and Todd's Hype Machine. So, Ben, the buzz box this time around contains a rumor that Jim Lee has asked Dan Jurgens to write his Fantastic Four book for the Heroes Reborn, as it'll eventually be known. But neither gentleman would confirm if this was actually the case. Uh, of course, it ends up being Lee's friend and regular writing partner, Brandon Choi, who writes the adventures of Marvel's first family in those 12 issues. Now, Todd McFarlane is contributing a valuable comic-related item or two for an auction to Ben benefit legendary artist Gene Colan, best known for his work on Tomb of Dracula, Daredevil, among many other things, and he was suffering at this time from a serious case of glaucoma, and so it was good to see the comic book folks supporting those that paved the way for them, uh, and a, you know, a wizard alumni who's very involved in that is Magic Words editor Jim McLaughlin. Yeah. I don't know if it was, was it just getting, like, kind of arranged at this time, right? It was That was something that was just coming into being. Yeah, I, I don't know if there was a formal thing like the Hero Initiative or anything like that, Quite yet, but there was a level of respect from this generation to the previous that, that was nice to see. And then finally here, since we're kind of light on Jim and Todd news this issue overall, I thought it would be worth doing a quick Punisher's Price Guide.
Now, this is actually something that we abandoned a long time ago, Ben, because it was a segment where we would compare, you know, the Wizard Price Guide to modern day prices. But I, I can't do the math to figure out for inflation and all of that. Like, is it actually accurate? But I thought we'd go back to that just for this time around, have a little bit of fun looking at the value of their highest selling books in 1996. So, for example, Todd's Spider-Man number one was valued at $8 at this time, while Jim's X-Men number one was only fetching $2.50. That seems incredibly low. You take into account, though, just the numbers, right. you know, of that were printed, at least of X-Men. I will say that there was a complete set of variant X-Men number one covers going for $35 these mm-hmm. days. So even then, not that much. Individual issues might sell anywhere from 5 to 15 depending on which cover. But on the other side side of their image work, Spawn number one was worth $17 at this time. And Wildcats number one was only valued at $7. So always, like, seems like just Todd was a little bit above Jim in the value of comics. It's just interesting to see where all the image guys went. And, And speaking from my own personal experiences, Jim Lee was my favorite when I was a kid. I got to, when I was at Wizard, do an article where I went out to ramen with Jim Lee and interviewed him about I think he was bringing back Wildcats at the time or was purportedly bringing back Wildcats. So that was like a dream come true. Then I saw him at uh, a Wizard World LA convention. He said, Ben, and he said he really liked how our interview came out. He said, I'll do a sketch for you, like whatever you want. And I said, of course, my favorite character infamously is Nova. And I was like, when else am I going to see Jim Lee draw Nova? So he did this amazing Nova sketch for me. Wow. I swear, the way he did it, though, was like he took a page of my sketchbook, basically dumped ink all over it, and then used whiteout and whiteout pens to, like, draw almost in reverse. Wow. It was one of the coolest things I've ever seen. People, if they want to, Google, literally just Google Jim Lee Nova, and it's the only thing that will show up because I've posted (laughs) it on the internet a number of times. But then Todd, I never had any interaction with. Really? But I mean, you got to remember, I was getting into the industry by like 2004. He was not really hands-on with comics at the time. He was focused very much on toys and sports stuff. So I never did anything with Todd McFarlane, literally for my, you know, 12 to 13 years in comics, no interaction whatsoever. But it's really interesting to me to see that Todd's stuff is so much higher than Jim's because I always thought, and this might be personal bias, but I always thought of of Jim is the much bigger draw. It's also, it speaks to the fact that, uh, I think Spawn ultimately was more successful than Wildcats. I was just at an antique store today, and I saw multiple issues of Spawn. Like, one was slabbed, one was not. You know, but they were like $40, $80 for that first issue. So it's just, it's kind of funny. Like, that's the one that just is burned in everybody's brain for nostalgia, I guess. And I also, I think if you took that Nova sketch and you showed it to Eric Larson at a convention, he'd be like, I could do better than that. And then he would give you a free sketch. I already have an Eric collection nova <laughs> i've got an eric larson nova i've got a jim lee nova I, i've got I, I i like to pride myself on saying well with eric larson it's not the case but there are novas where i'm like i think i have the only time this this person has ever drawn nova i think jim lee's one of those times that's so cool all right well as we get down to our final tally then this issue jim lee is mentioned four times todd mcfarland three so that brings our running total to jim lee 311 mentions todd mcfarland 330 I feel like with Heroes Reborn coming up, Jim's going to have a chance to close that gap that he lost during those months he wasn't in the top 10. But I guess we got to stay tuned. 
Well, you're in Vegas, so I guess you can start taking those retroactive bets, you know? I'll see what they say. (laughs) Well, we are going to close out, as we often do, with Turok's Top Ten. So we started with Amalgam, and now we're going to end on Amalgam, because there were so many pitches for Amalgam, as we saw online from the Wizard staff, from the actual users on America Online. But then at the end of the magazine, Wizard brings us their top 10 Marvel DC Amalgams we'd like to see. So why don't you start us off there? Sure. Number 10, Nick Fury of... Should I spell this out, or should I just say it? (laughs) It's F-I-R-E-S-T-O-R-M, which in case you didn't know, spells Firestorm. Nick Fury of Firestorm, the nuclear man. What? That is bizarre. I I want to find out what they think Firestorm could possibly stand for. Oh, my God. Yeah, that would be amazing. You listeners out there, you tell us. Give us an acronym. Number nine, Big Barda Rayville. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. Number eight. Silver Streaky the Surfer Cat. They loved those pet heroes, didn't they? Yes. Number seven, Legion of Substitute Secret Defenders. I would buy that in a heartbeat. No question. That sounds amazing. Number six, Blue Devil Dinosaur. Very nice. That's a deep cut. That's pretty good. Number five, Man Bat Rock the Leaper. They love their Man Bat. That's That's for sure. Man Bat Rock the Leaper. Speaking of deep cuts, number four is Archangel and the Ape. Fill people in on what Angel and the Ape was. I honestly know very little about it other than it's a DC, like, Silver Age concept where it's some woman and a gorilla. That's all. Number three, Martian Man Thing. Not bad. Number two, Superman's pal, Fin Fang Foom. (laughs) You gotta believe. I mean, he had to have been turned into a dragon person at some point, right? During Superman's pal, Jimmy Olsen. Totally. I must have. And number one, the Scarlet Sandwich Man. I mean, I know they wanted to take a dig at the Scarlet Spider, at the whole clone saga, but that one doesn't make any sense. Well, are they combining Scarlet Witch with the Sandman? Oh, oh, so they're using, I was confused because they're using DC Sandman. I thought they were using Marvel Sandman. I'm like, they're both Marvel characters. That makes no sense. Oh, you figured it out. Yeah, Scarlet Witch and Sandman. That's still pretty stupid. (laughs) Not the one to go out on. I I honestly, I think Big Barteray Bill. That's your closer. Or Superman's pal, Fin Fang Foom. Either one of those. They peaked earlier on with this. <laughs> well, Ben, I want to thank you so much once again for being on the show, for coming in, sharing your thoughts. Is there any just random wizard story floating in the ether for you right now? Like something that came to mind as we were talking here, whether from your reading days or from your days in the office? No, I was just like, again, I mean, I've, I've reiterated this both in my interview and as we went back through this today, which was a ton of fun. But it was just so cool for me that characters in my life from when I was a kid became co-workers and friends, which was just the neatest thing. And reading these old issues and hearing the episodes you guys do with Brian and all the people you get on, it's just kind of cool to, to, that it all comes uh, that it all comes full circle. 
Yeah, absolutely. And more to come, by the way. This year, we're planning to bring a lot more wizard staffers on to reminisce. Definitely have some people who have been appearing in the pages quite a bit that we need to talk to and be like, hey, what were you doing? What was was going on around this time? But Ben, if people want to find out what you're up to these days, where can they get in touch with you? I'm on Twitter as Ben J. Morse, B-E-N-J-M-O-R-S-E. That's kind of my go-to, but I'm also on Instagram at Ben Loves Comics, and that's literally just three or four times a day. I'll post comics I'm reading. I'm reading a ton of comics all the time. I'll post the art. I'll give my thoughts, and you can enjoy or choose to ignore as you see fit. (laughs) Fair enough. But really, just once again, Ben, thank you so much for being with us. And thank you so much for checking out this episode of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. It's always a blast with our guests and just sharing the nostalgia for 90s comics with you all. Uh, Be sure to check out our mini episode because, again, there's always surprises now. We're trying to mix it up, whether it's the guests, whether it is the features. It's not just a routine every time we kind of have a mixture of things that we pull from each issue to share with you of course we also have a lot of new videos on our youtube page i have been getting all sorts of awesome wizard collectibles whether it's issues of the magazine or promotional posters yes some of these covers in a huge format oh i'm so excited to share them with you all more to come so make sure you're subscribed over there on the wizards podcast youtube page of course we We also have a lot going on on social media. I know that many of you just look forward to those posts and getting the images that really spark that nostalgia. Issue 56 and this era of Wizard, I know, was where a lot of people really went hardcore into reading and subscribing. So be sure to share your experiences with us at Wizards Comics on Twitter, at Wizards underscore comics on Instagram. Michael will be back for episode 57, where we have a very special guest. I am not going to reveal who it is you will have to listen to the mini episode for that however i can tell you that we got some insider information on heroes reborn because this guest actually worked at marvel yes he was an editor on the x-men comics in that era and boy oh boy did he have a lot to say about the machinations uh, happening from the inside to save the traditional Marvel way of doing comics. So you are going to want to tune in for that. It is a big one. So many amazing stories from behind the scenes. I, wow. Uh, So yes, stay tuned for that. But until next time, keep your books bagged and boarded. of the Retro Network.